Well, just previous to that, in verse 21, where it says this, and they had eaten, and they that had eaten were about 5,000 men. And so he's just feeding, he had just fed the multitudes and with a, a boy that just brought a couple of loaves and some fish. And uh, he brought, uh, he, he had a portion, that little boy had a portion that, that he was going to use, obviously, uh, for himself and his family. And God has so much more for us. He has so much more. And when, then when we give him the responsibility of our family, of ourselves, and of our family, he can do much more than just feed our family. He can, he can feed multitudes. And sometimes we think, and the enemy would cause us to think, that what we have is not enough. But a little, just a little bit in God's hands, in Jesus' hands, is a lot that God can use. And so that's why it's so very important for us just to bring back his love, give his love back through obedience and to trust him for every single thing in our life. And so he had just fed, it says here, 5,000 men. Now it says five, there are two, two different occasions, at two different times where he fed 4,000 and then he would feed 5,000. This is brought up during the sixth chapter here in Matthew 14th and then in Mark also. But it says 5,000 men, just men. And then it says besides women and children. He fed multitudes, and I love what he does, and obviously he still does that to this day. He's still feeding multitudes, multitudes, but that come to him that don't resist him, but that come to him. And so he had just fed 5,000. Then it says in verse 22 of Matthew 14, and right away Jesus constrained his disciples. And constrained here is, literally means that when Jesus was speaking to them, like he speaks to us through the word this morning, he speaks through his love. And that's what constrains us. And the word constrain is brought out in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, we know that the love of Christ constrains us. And what that means is it's, it holds us, keeps us still, keeps us calm, keeps us, keeps us in a place of rest. And it's like a vice that holds us, holds us, holds our minds and our emotions and, and, and puts them in a place to constantly receive from him because we know what love does, and we're going to see that what love does to fear, it drives out fear. I, think, I was thinking this morning in my own uh, personal time with the Lord this morning as he was counseling me that the unsaved, those that, do, that don't have Christ, those that don't know about him yet, or those that constantly resist him, and us that are in Christ, we still have the flesh in us that we're not of in Romans 8, verse 9. But in both cases, both cases, the flesh that's in us that we're not of, in the unsaved world, the only thing that motivates them to do a single thing is fear. That's it. That is it. And for us in Christ, all, we, all God has for us is his love that constrains us. 
So there's only two things that at any time, and they are mutually exclusive, by the way, they're mutually exclusive. There's only two, two ways that we can go. The unsaved only functions in fear. I don't care how much success, how much money, whatever they have, it is fear that's motivated them and it's fear that keeps them thinking that they have to keep it. And then, of course, for us, there's love. And we know that in 2 Timothy 1.7, that God has not given us the spirit of fear. God, who is God? God is love. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, all the way to 20 in that chapter, that God is love. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Power. And who is that power? In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 24, it is Christ himself. And we are kept constrained by God, being in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that love, that, that love is manifested from God to us through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It constrains us and holds us in a vice. A lot of times, even the anger that we express at times, which is not godly anger, and that's where Ephesians 4 and verse 26 says, be angry and sin not. But there's, there is an anger, and honestly, there is an anger that's based upon pride, and pride always results in some form of fear. And then it becomes a form, it can enter into a form of resistance, resistance. And so, again, here it says this, that he constrained, in, in Matthew 14, 22, he constrained, led with his love, his disciples, those that were his learners, his pupils, his mathetes, those learners, to get into a ship, to get into and go and get into a certain place. And to go, it says, before him unto the other side. Do we see that this morning? He told them to do something, to trust him, and that he told them when they were to get in that ship that they would get to the other side. That's what he told them. Very clearly, you can see this again in Luke, the eighth chapter. While he sent, after he sent the multitude away, filled, he did not send them away. Listen, he will never send us away when we sit and rest in a place where he can feed us. So he sent the multitude away and they were filled. They were filled full. And that's why it's very important for us to, to hear the word as much as possible. We, we shared it yesterday. It's extremely important that our schedules, no matter what they are, are to have preaching and teaching. Nothing should take precedence over it. We should not choose another thing over hearing the word of God. Because if we do, it's starting off right away on the wrong foot. Something is in place of Christ and his counsel and his constraining, protecting love. And that's the other word what it means to be constrained by love, because we know that love always protects. God wants us to be obedient, okay? To be obedient so that, he, so that his love flows and he can, we can experience intimacy with him. And this is 1 John 1, 1 through 3, and then share it with others in the fourth verse. So he sent the multitude away, 
told the disciples to get into a ship to go to the other side. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. Now, this is a beautiful portion here because in the type and what is being taught here is, is that God tells us what to do through his word and we experience the results of it through obedience. Resistance never does. Pride never does. Fear never, ever, ever does. Never does. And we can hide those things we think from others. We can't hide them from God. Those areas of disobedience. And resistance is, is a manifestation of disobedience. It's not as constraining love is not the thing that protects us experientially, even though he never leaves us nor forsakes us in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. And so here it says this, that, that he went up into a mountain apart to pray. So God tells us to do things. He tells us to obey. And the whole time, guess what God, God Jesus Christ, is doing. Guess what he's doing in Romans 8, verse 34, and Hebrews 7, verse 25, and Hebrews 9, verse 24. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for us. That's what he's doing. Jesus went up apart, went up, up, up a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, when the evening was come, he was there alone. See, he was there alone. He was there alone with his father. But the ship was now, notice this, in the midst of the sea. What this means and the way it was brought to me this morning and God's counsel for me personally is this, that this ship, this place where we are is this. We are in this world, the midst of the sea. We are in this world, but we're not of it. We are in this world. We're not of it. That's John 17 and verse 16. The truth of that is, in John 17 and verse 14, Jesus was in the world, but he was never of it. We are in the world, but we're not of it. But when we use, and the enemy would have us to use the world, the things of the world, in 1 John 2, 15, to replace Christ in our experience, then experientially, we're left unprotected. And what that means is then we just go by thoughts that that are based upon lies in john 8 verse 44 satan's the father of all lies and they are not god's thoughts towards us they're not his protective thoughts towards us and so here the ship was in the midst of the sea the sea we are in the we are in the midst of the sea what is the world like that we're, that is that we're in right now what is it like what is the world like? And this is what the world is like. And this is what can happen. This is what the enemy wants to do to the believer. And this is how he can do it. Now, this is Isaiah 57. Right here. This is Isaiah 57. Verse 18. And, and it says this. I have seen his ways and will heal him. We know that in Psalm 107. And in verse 20, it says he sent his word and he healed them and he delivered them from all their destructions, all their destructive thoughts that were coming from the enemy, like a wave, like the waves of the sea, waves of these thoughts coming in and crashing up upon the place of our comfort in Christ to remove us from that. 
I've seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also. Why? Because we cannot lead ourselves. The enemy wants us to think that we can lead ourselves. We cannot do that. We have to be dependent upon him. And that dependence is created and brought into us in the local assembly where Christ is the head in Colossians 1.18. Where Christ is the head and we don't deny him in Colossians 2 and verse 19. Being the head of the body, the very head, the body in Ephesians 5 and verse 30. And so he said, I will lead him and restore comforts unto him. See, this is his love, his constraining, comforting, protecting love. Comfort is unto him and to his mourners. Verse 19 says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to them, to him that is afar off. And at times we can get afar off from him. We get in the world, we forget him. And then we stop getting in the world that we're not of. And making something of that more than him. And so, and again, he never leaves us. He's always waiting in Isaiah 30, 18 to be gracious to us and to, and to love us, to grace us out with the comfort and protection and conviction of his love. And so he said, to them that are far off and to him that is near, to him that is near, and how close is he to us? Instantly, instantly, we can run to him. That is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. You see, it's his will, the will that Christ is, the very will of God that finished the work in John 4 and verse 34, in John 19 and verse 30, and in Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. We see this very, very clearly. But it says this, but the wicked, and the wicked, the wicked here are just simply unbelievers. Now, I can be an unbeliever in the flesh, but is that truly who I am? No, but I can function like one. You see, the whole world system is, is, is led by the enemy to keep them from believing God, thinking and, and from believing and needing a savior, a deliverer, someone who can constantly uh, deliver them. And so that's what it means. The wicked here is, is those that function as unbelievers. And they're like what? The troubled sea. I want us to see that. And uh, all of us this morning, they are like the troubled sea, the troubled sea, the thoughts, the emotions, all of these things that come in and trouble us. When it cannot rest, you see, cannot rest. Long as we resist his love, as long as we resist and live in delayed obedience, which is disobedience, when we do, we, there's no rest and there's no comfort of his love. As long as I resist him in the smallest way, and remember, little leaven, little bit, Galatians 5, 9, and so forth. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It affects my whole relationship. And so, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. This has to do with the rejection, the resistance, and the rejection of Christ. That can be a believer in positioned in him, but experientially rejecting him. Then the enemy in that resistance and rejection can cause the flesh and stir up the flesh with all of its mud and its maya and its dirt. But it says here, there is no peace, says, says my God, to the unbeliever. 
to the wicked, to the wicked. And so here again, back to Matthew, the 14th chapter, and we'll go to another place uh, very soon. We see, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea. Guess what? And it was tossed with waves. And what that means is the believer, we are in the world, but we're not of it. And then the enemy in Isaiah 59, 19, comes in like a flood, a wave of thoughts, negative, evil thoughts that cause us to live in unbelief, like the world system, to live like those that are under Satan positionally, not us. We're positioned in Christ. And so it says that the ship, the place where they were, in the midst of this world system, the place where we are, the enemy comes in and tosses and is tossed with waves for the wind. And who, who is the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2? Who gets the believer at times, like he has the unsaved, but gets the believer in Hosea 4 and verse 19? It says her wings, her wings, which is the ability for us to pray and live above things, but her wings get caught up in the wind, get caught up in, in, in Satan and, and what he's projecting in, in here. And so the, her, the wind was what? The wind was contrary. Where else do we see this truth? This is where else we see this truth uh, this morning here, and we can see it clearly and why we need the body of Christ why we don't, whatever we do. Yes, God has us to minister to others, but it's never outside of our submission and obedience to Christ where he's placed us in a local assembly. Again, Christ is the head of the local assembly because a local assembly is just a part of the whole, and it's still Christ that's the head. Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the local assembly. It's not that you're obeying man. It's not man's way that you're submitting to in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. We thank God that when you receive the word that you didn't receive it as the word of men, something that a man was saying, we have to obey him all the time and do everything that he wants to do. And it's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with Christ who's the head here. And so we see in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, when we get into Ephesians, the fourth chapter, talking about the local assembly here where we learn the first three chapters of personal intimacy with Christ in those first three chapters of the epistle of Ephesians. It speaks of the height of our position in Christ that we are experienced right now in the midst of this evil, adulterous, and wicked, unbelieving world system that we're in, but that we're not of. And this is Ephesians 4. This is Ephesians 4 and verse 8 where it says, wherefore he, Jesus Christ, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And what this is teaching is when he got us, we're more than conquerors, right? We're more than conquerors in Romans 8 and verse 37. You see God's love expressed through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit has conquered us in terms of salvation. It's delivered us positionally, and now we're going to experience the results of that experientially, that experiential constant deliverance. This is brought out again in 1 John 1 and verse 7, giving us always a way back 
in 1 John 1 and verse 9 when we lead our true character, which is based upon 1 John 1 and verse 7. But here it says, wherefore, he said, when he ascended up on high, he led a whole multitude of captives captured now with his love. They, you and I were once captured by Satan through sin in, Rome, uh, in John 8 and verse 34. We served him because his, our wills were captured by him in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26. And he used the captivity of our will to cause us to oppose ourselves. The enemy still wants to do that to Christians through their resistance, through rebellion, through stubbornness in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 23. Still wants to do that. And, and God himself through Jesus Christ is never satisfied. He's not satisfied until we rest experientially in the love that his son is. And this is brought out very beautifully because he's qualified us, made us meet to qualify to walk in the light in Colossians 1 and verse 12, because we've been transliterated positionally from the kingdom of darkness, Satan, with our wills captive, living in sin, unto the kingdom of the son of his love, it says, in Colossians 1 and verse 13. And so when it says he led a whole multitude of captives captive, then he gave gifts unto men. Now this is fulfilling Psalm 68 in verse 18. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. There it says, and also unto the rebellious, and really, and positionally, and even he did it to those that would refuse him. He made it possible. But that's why it's, it's not talking about those that are rebellious, because he sees us in Christ here. That's why that word rebellious is still in Psalm 68 and verse 18, but not here in Ephesians 4 and verse 8. And then it says he gave gifts unto the men. The men themselves were the gifts. It's not talking about a specific gift, although, well, in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, and we'll read it there. But again, those men were the gifts themselves that he gave to the body of Christ. Now it says, now that he ascended. What is it? But that he also descended in first into the lower parts of the earth. That simply means Jesus, again, based upon uh, 2 Peter 3 and verse 19 and 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. Jesus never went into hell. He only went into the grave. But here it says he descended down into the earth. You know that Jesus never went into hell. He went into the grave and into the grave only. And that's based upon Psalm 16 and verse 10. He will not allow his body to be corrupted in the grave. Hades, the grave, not hell. He never went there, ever. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. This is brought out in John, the first chapter, in verse 1, through, right through, up into and through verse 14 there. But here it says, he that descended is the same that ascended up, far above. Listen to what it says. All principality, he ascended up, far above all heavens, that he might fill all things, that he might fulfill all things the original says and boy he has for us for all of us in christ and then it says and then he gave some not all some apostles new testament there are no more apostles and some prophets new testament prophets and some and this is what we're left with in the body of christ now that the foundation has been laid 
Matthew 16 and verse 18. Now that the work has been finished in John 19 and verse 30, and the scriptures through the apostles, New Testament, bringing in, of course, the old and fully giving us all scripture that's inspired of God in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. And, and using those apostles and prophets to complete the scriptures. And some believe that the, the last book of the Bible, Revelations, was the full canon, full rule and measure of scriptures in AD 96, where it was fulfilled. And so now what we're left with is, and it's more than enough because everything is finished, some evangelists, those that come out of a local assembly, to bring others, to win them to Christ where they are and to bring them back into the local assembly so that they can be fed like they are fed. And that's evangelists. And then it says, and some pastors and teachers. Some pastors and teachers. What? For the maturing, the fitting out, the fully fitting out individuals of the saints. Saint is one who's been set apart from the old and set into new. This is John 17 and verse 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. This has happened to us positionally. Now it's to be a constant experience, a constant experience of deliverance. And so for the, for the completing, the fitting out of the saints, what? For the work of the ministry, because we each have a part. We each are a joint. We'll see down here in 416. For the, for the work of the ministry, listen, for the edifying of the body of Christ, you see, that's what makes it most important. Those that we should spend the most time with and be with in a face-to-face -face way as much as we can is the body of Christ, is that local assembly. The body of Christ. What? Until we all come in the unity of the faith. All those teachings and preachings that bring out the person of Christ and the work that he's finished for each individual. The unity of the faith. We all have the same mind. We, have, we all have the same mind. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, and that knowledge has to do again with, with Ephesians 3 and verse and verse 19, to know the love of Christ, that knowledge that continually, that continually uh, brings into us this loving, constraining, convicting, protecting, and edifying love. And then that makes us vessels of that same, that are joints that supply. Do you see? And to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect, a complete man, a whole local assembly, that function in, in completion for the unsaved world to look at. They're different than us. They don't worry like we do. They're not negative. They don't have negative thoughts and negative emotions. And look at the way that they love each other. It's different. It's a testimony. It's something that I want and desire. A complete man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? And here's where we are. That we from now on be no more little children. What? Tossed to and fro. Notice. And carried about with every wind of doctrine. All that satanic reasoning. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God. To the pulling down of strongholds, these ways of thinking and resistance and rebellion.
rebellion and stubbornness, living in the self-life and living only for myself. And everything has to be just the way that I want it. And if it's not, I'm going to resist. I'm going to complain. And I'm going to reveal negativity. Of course, any of us can do that in the flesh. And God forbid that we should do so. Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Who's the deceiver? In Revelation 12, 9, it's Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. You know, when a Christian lives in deception, known deception, no, it's known. They resist. They know they shouldn't, but they do. They know that they should do good, submit to the goodness that is only in God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But to him that knows to do good and does it not, what is it? It's sin. It's sin. And sin, we know in Psalm 51 and verse 4, is evil. And evil, sin is against God. We sin. When we sin against one another, we're sinning against God, and then it affects each of us. And God forbid, and thank God he gives us a way that we no longer, we no longer know each other. When we enter into forgiveness, there's no more memory, and God doesn't treat us after that failure anymore. He doesn't. Experientially, the position has been dealt with. This is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, we experience his faithfulness and justice being met through his love to forgive us our sins and keep us covered from entering into others. And that's what 1 John 1, 9 is bringing out with Psalm 130, uh, verses uh, 4 and 5, bringing that out very, very beautifully. And so as we begin to wrap this up this morning, it says, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Now, if the enemy and I function in known deception, then he can use me to be an accuser. Imagine a Christian accusing one another, being suspicious of one another. Listen. Is there any suspicion in love? Never. But being suspicious, this person wants me to do this. I'm kind of suspicious because I'm thinking they want to make everything about themselves. Lord God Almighty, could it be that there's leadership and God knows what he's doing? Can he take care of us? And can he take care of those that are leaders, evangelists and pastors and teachers in this in this complete correlation and connection, can he do that? How does he lead today? How does God lead? He does it through event. He does it through specifically through pastors and teachers. That's how he does it. Not that you're obeying man; you're obeying God and His Word. Again, First Thessalonians two and verse thirteen, that they lie in wait to deceive, and if the enemy can deceive me in known disobedience. And he can use me as an accuser. He can accuse and use me as a vessel of, of accusations against others. But separated from that, speaking the truth in love, notice that, may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, you see, it's Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, notice that the body is knit together, in the Greek, it's Colossians 2 and verse 2. Their hearts were knit together. They were one. And that was brought out, and this is brought out in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. They're one. The whole body fitly joined together and compacted, notice protected, 
compacted. There again is that vice, that constraining love in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. They're compacted. No air in Job 41 and verse 16. No air. No air of disobedience, rejection, negativity, resistance can pass between them. They're one. Speaks of a kiss. Speaks of submission. And that's what a kiss reveals. It speaks of absolute submission. So no air passes between. They're one. This starts in a, in a relationship, in marriage, and in the home. And what is what goes on in the home, if it's not Christ, we bring into the local assembly. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies. You see, we, we have a we can be a supply. I'm not a supply, I'm a resistor. I function as an unbeliever, even though I'm positioned in Christ. I am I I express negativity. The opposite, the polar opposite. The polar op- opposite. Love attracts, negativity repels, like two opposing magnets. And again, it's brought out here that every joint supplies according to the effectual working. Notice this. In the measure of every part, meaning we all have the full measure of Christ to give each other. But if I haven't received them, I don't have them to give. Which makes increase of the body, the increase of what? Of his love. Unto the edifying of itself in what? In love. In love. You see? And so this is what is being taught in Matthew the 14th chapter. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain, part to pray, to intercede. And when evening was come, he was there alone, but the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, with waves. We've been taught here that before there was an angelic conflict, before Lucifer fell and became Satan, God's opponent and man's opponent, those that are created in his image. Hating the image of God and hating the image of God revealed in man through Jesus Christ. The true creation creating man in his image. This is brought out in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says that God created man in his image. And then what it's saying there and bringing out through the preponderance of all the scriptures here, bringing out clearly is those that are in Christ. God knew there was going to be a fall. Those were not created in his image. We have this brand new image now in 2 Corinthians 3. In the third chapter, read that. In 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, bringing out these precious realities. Again here, it says there that the ship was tossed to and fro uh, with waves for the wind. And we were taught this, that before that fall, there was only one will. There was only one thought force received so that they could function in the force of that one will and that one thought. And then when there was a, the angelic conflict, there was a fall where his tail in, in Revelation 12 and verse 4, his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven, which were angels of this innumerable host that became the satanic army, comes against the believer, causes all the waves of unbelief and disbelief and lack of trusting God and, and doubting and fears. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, in this spiritual warfare, this conflict. But for the Christian now, there's a choice. Which thought force do we submit to? Because whatever thought force, and there's only two now, it's Christ 
It's the God the Father through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, or it's, it's Satan in his demonic army, his thought force. And what we submit to is what we function in, you see. And here it is brought out, brought out very clearly, for the wind was what? Contrary. You see, the enemy comes in, and all his thoughts are contrary to the truth that's been revealed to us in Christ. It's constantly, the wind is constantly blowing against us, the atmosphere, constantly contra, contrary to us trusting in his love. We walk by faith in 2 Corinthians 5, so absolute dependence upon him, who's promised to never leave us nor forsake us, constant dependence. We walk by faith, not by sight, not by fallen feelings and emotions we do. We don't go by that. We do not walk by that. And so again, here, for the wind was contrary. Satan, prince and power of the air. Ephesians 2, 2, God of this world. Prince of this world, God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The prince of this world system, of which had nothing to do, Jesus had nothing to do with it in John 12, 31, and John 14, and verse 30. But then, went right when that wind was contrary, look, and in the fourth watch of the night, the darkest place, your darkest circumstances and situations, Jesus went unto them. And he does so through us still, through intercession and through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us into a present reality where we face him. Don't face the circumstances and situations, the lies, without submitting to him in James 4 and verse 7. But when I submit, I've got him face to face. And this is what this is teaching. Jesus went unto them. He was walking on the sea, that troubled sea he was walking. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying it is a spirit. And they cried out for what? For fear. They didn't expect God in their circumstances. They did not expect him to be in their circumstances. They were living by their own resources. And then when those failed, they didn't expect him to come. And so because there's fear, and there's no fear in love in 1 John 4, 18. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them saying, be of good cheer. Your good is in me, not in yourself. No, no, your good is in me. Your good is in me. Be of good cheer. Be graced out with my love. It is I. Stop being afraid. And then Peter answered and said unto him, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come unto you in the water. And that's what he's bidding us to do. Come unto him in the midst of our troubles, circumstances, and situations. Stop looking at them by sight, by resistance, by anger, by fear, by negativity. No. If it's you, come. And he bids us to come. And he said, come. This is Matthew 11, 28 to 30. All you that labor in the midst of your troubled sea and all these thoughts that aren't yours, this thought force that's causing you to function in disbelief and negativity and doubt and fear. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But you need to take my yoke upon you that you can learn of me. You can't learn of me apart from a yoke of complete dependence and restraining and constraining love. 
to you. And I will give you rest. I'll give you my rest, he says, the rest that I have in the midst of your trouble. I am your rest and your only resting place. You can rest your head still on the pillow of absolute dependence in the most closest place of intimacy, which is Cold Pond, K-O-L-P-O-N. You can rest your head like John did. And there's plenty of room there in John 13 and verse 23. So he said, come, Peter, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he took his eyes off of Christ. This is Hebrews 12, 2. Look away from all that would distract. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. But you're going to hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, straight, walk you in it. In Isaiah 30 and verse 21. Come and walk on the water. But when he saw the wind that was boisterous, wild, waves flying everywhere, he was afraid. He began to look at his circumstances and situations apart from Christ. He took his eyes off of him. And immediately, the instant that we do, we do, we enter into fear. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried. He cried saying, Lord, deliver me, save me. And immediately, Jesus, immediately when we cry out, when we cry out, we'll see it as we end this. We'll see this as we end this this morning. That in Psalm 56 and verse 9, it it says, when I cry unto the Lord, when I cry unto the Lord, then all my enemies, doubt, fear, disobedience, negativity. When I cry unto the Lord, he will hear me. Then my enemies will turn back. Why? For this I know. I realize it right in the midst of the most troubled circumstance. This is what I realize, that God is for me and never against me. God is for me in Psalm 56 and verse 9. In Psalm 56 and verse 8, he bottles all my tears. He keeps all my prayers like an incense because they're mixed with dependence upon Christ. In Revelations 5 and verse 8, they go up as a sweet, like incense to him. And so here, again, it says this, and it's brought out very, very beautifully here, and that he began to sink, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O you of little dependence upon me, O you that choose in certain areas to be dependent, in other areas you function in independence of me, O you of little dependence, why did you doubt? Why did you think, and why do any of us think we can do anything without him? In John 15, 1 to 5. Well, we saw this. He said, oh, you of little faith. It, it says there, and it says, and we can see, and when they were coming to the ship, the winds ceased. The winds ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshiped him, saying, of a truth, you, are, you really are the Son of God. And we know that in Luke, the eighth chapter, when Jesus told them to get into the ship, that he, they were going to get to the other side, did they? Did God lead us through our circumstances? He wants to ask us a question this morning. Has he led us through the difficulty of our circumstances? Has he ever let us down? Did he ever let us sink in our circumstances and situations? He never promised 
to take us out of them, but he did promise that he would lead us through so that we could learn intimacy and growing with him. We'll close with Psalm 107. We will close with that Psalm, still having some time left this morning. And we can see this very, very beautifully. We can see and what the, the, the whole 106th Psalm speaks about their rebellion, people living in rebellion, his chosen people, Israel, living in rebellion constantly. Constant murmuring and complaining and rebelling against him based upon sight and, and circumstances and situations, making their circumstances and situations when they weren't pleasing to themselves cause them to be very negative. We see that all through here. But what it leads up to is here. Leads up to Psalm 107. And, and we can read it. And I'm just going to read it through and we'll see it. In Psalm 107, verse 1, it says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. What is he speaking to us this morning? Ephesians 5.20. We ought to thank him for all things. All things. All things. Because he's in control of all things in our life. He is. This is 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15. This is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. This is Romans 8 and verse 28. With 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18. Be thankful in all things. Because for all things and in all things, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. But we take our eyes off but he never takes his eyes off of us in John 36 and verse 7. So give thanks unto the Lord, for he is your good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, the enemy of doubt, the enemy of fear. And gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness. That's what we do in unbelief and resisting God. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. You see, God allows the trouble, Job 23 and verse 16. The Almighty uses that trouble to make our hearts soft and, to, and again, to enter into fresh areas of complete dependency and his constraining love. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted, and they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of all their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way. Of course, he leads us by the right way, is Christ's way in John 14, 6, that they might go to a city of habitation. And right now, our city right now, where, we're, where he inhabits us, is in a local assembly. When we're on our way to our heavenly city, in Hebrews 13 and verse 14, and we give sacrifices of praise in Hebrews 13 and verse 15, which is a form of thankfulness. I know I'm always right with him when I can be thankful. The minute we're not, that can be something that God can use to tell us this is headed for trouble and distress. Well, all oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies only him, only Christ. He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with his goodness. Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Remember, it's only a shadow for us. 
So listen, read Psalm 23, 1 through 6. They sit in darkness in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of the Lord. This is known disobedience to the Christian. And condemned the counsel of the Most High. Oh, that's what resistance does. It condemns the counsel of the Most High. And therefore, he brought down their heart with labor to bring them to a place, not to crush them, but to lead them to constraint and the constraint and a yoke again to his son in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, to deliver them from their their labor and their being laden. He brought down their heart, their mind with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Who's going to help us in our circumstances and situations? Who's the only one that's ever done that for us? Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of all their distresses. He constantly delivered them. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands asunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. for he has broken the gates of brass, the enemy in resistance. Remember the gates? The gates of hell. Here, in Matthew 16, 18. Peter, you said that and you got that from my father. And upon this foundation, the foundation that Christ says, I will build my church. I will build them and edify them and deliver them from their distresses. And the gates of hell, all the powers of hell and resistance won't prevail against you when you submit. In James 4, 7, then you draw nigh in James 4, 8. Gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in, in asunder. Fools because of transgression. And a fool lives in their own opinions and their own thoughts and private interpretations of the word. In Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, their confidence is in themselves because of their transgressions. And a transgression is known obedience. Known, excuse me, known disobedience. And because of their iniquities are afflicted, their soul abhors all manner of meat. The word is not, they they don't want to taste the word anymore. That once was beautiful to them in Psalm 34 and verse 8. And they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of all their distresses. He sent his word, and he healed them, and delivered them from all their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works unto the children, to the children of men, and and let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise, again in Hebrews 13, 15, and declare his works with singing, singing, worship, right worship, not fleshly worship, having nothing to do with self and everything to do with him even in the music and the beats that we listen to, as well as the words, have a tremendous effect on us. Absolutely no question about it. His works with singing and rejoicing. They that go down to the sea in ships, you see this? Told them to get into the ships there in Matthew, the 14th chapter. They go down in ships that do business in great waters. The great waters. Here we are in the world system. Great waters. But in that ship, who do we have with us who will never leave us nor forsake us? And that's the business. Our business 
is to be with him and to be dependent on him in the midst of this world system, in the midst of our circumstances and situations, so that he's our guide unto death until we see him face to face. In Psalm 48 and verse 14, he's our guide unto death. And death is only the door into his, and final death is only door a door into his presence in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1. And so then they, they do great, they do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord. You see, they saw the works of the Lord in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their circumstances and situations. They saw his great work. And God wants us to see his great work in us, experientially, each of us in our circumstances and situations. These see the, the works of the Lord. You see, we don't believe in the comfortable, convenient gospel like a little ship that stays tied to the harbor and doesn't go anywhere. It just seeks ease and comfort. No, the great ships go out into the water, into the deep. They're not living for themselves. They're living for him, and as a result, living for others, having an abundant life in John 10, 10b. They don't just live their Christian life for themselves. They live it for God, for Jesus Christ. And when it is, it's for others. It's always that way. As we close here, they see his wonders in the deep. Oh, the deep calls unto the deep in Psalm 42 and verse 7. And even though all the waves and the billows go over us, like it was happening in Matthew, the 14th chapter, and Luke, the 8th chapter, Jesus was right there walking on the troubled sea above it, calling us to walk on it with him and trust him in our circumstances and situations. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind to test us, to test us, to test us, not to hurt us, not to drown us in our circumstances and situations, not to leave us with the lie of fear. No, no, no. Trying of our faith is more precious than gold in 1 Peter 1, 7. It creates more dependence in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and brings in wisdom in the fifth verse. Teaches us where true wisdom comes from. So he raises the stormy wind. He allows it. He allows the enemy to come in, which lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man or woman. And then they, they are what at their wits end. All their Natural wisdom is swallowed up by the trouble. That's what the enemy wants to do to those that don't, that uh, take their eyes off of Christ in Hebrews 12 too. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of all their distresses, all of them. He makes the storm a calm. And we see that in Matthew 14 and Luke 8. Then they are glad because now they're they're learning in the midst of it in Psalm 46, 1 through 10, the 10th verse, to be still in the midst of the storm and rages, to be still and know, experience his love, to know that he's God, will never leave them nor forsake them. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves now thereof are still. 
then they are glad because they are quiet and rest in his love. So he brings them again unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation. Uh, for us, the local assembly, let's sing and exalt him. What he's doing with us individually, individually. And, we'll, and that's what he's teaching us now and in, in the songs of now, in this particular night of his absence, he's teaching us to sing in Job 35 and verse 10, the night of his absence. So that now when we finally pass through death into life, into heaven, we worship around. We, we take our place like multitudes that have already gone ahead of us around the throne of the Lamb, Revelations 5, 9 through 12, and we sing the eternal song, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. And he's teaching us in the chorus of life to sing now to prepare us to, to enter into our place around his throne. All that men, let them exalt him also now. Learn to exalt him now in the congregation of the, of the people and praise him in the, the assembly of the elders. And Father, we just thank you and praise you for the preciousness of your word, the beauty of your counsel. Oh, that you just want us to obey you because you love us. It's not about people getting their way. No, no. He gave some to men in Ephesians 4, 8, and he gave some pastors and teachers to love the saints, to edify them, to build them up. Because we can't be led. And they are under shepherds, under shepherds, under the great shepherd, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 11. Jesus is the one shepherd. He's the good shepherd in John 10, 11 and 14. He's the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. He's the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, but he has under shepherds that are given given by him, connected to him, again in Ephesians 4, 8, connected to him so that they become our guides, not to rule and reign over us, to get their own way. No, but that they can have God's way in them and we can have it together in Hebrews 13, 17. He's given us these guides that we are to submit ourselves to, not to resist them but to submit to them and trust God for them. And if they need correcting, only God can do that, like only God can correct us. And Father, we thank you so much for the comfort of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.